I'm Paul Stringfellow and welcome to Tech Interviews. This week we get all trendy as we take a look at the ever-changing world of data. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to another uh, episode of Tech Interviews. Um, this week I'm in palatial surroundings. I've taken the Tech Interviews podcast on the road. I've not only stolen a studio, I've also stolen a producer for this episode. Um, but the reason that I'm doing that is um, I've, this is a show I've looked to, to do for probably about the last 12 months. Um, and it was based on a blog post um, I read of uh, that one of my guests today has put together. Um, and we're going to just explore a couple of those things. But um, So before we do that, though, why don't I introduce my guests? Um, so, uh, so guests, uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves um, and tell people who you are? Oh, my guest will. So my name's Richard Holmes. I have uh, the pleasure of uh, being guest one on uh, the tech interviews, and uh, I I work for uh, a little known company called Arrow ECS, and um, my my role is um, is currently um, it is um, business development director for the UK and Ireland uh, around our IoT business. That's uh, Internet of Things. So uh, just like that role, um, it's going to be an interesting year. Going to be learning lots, and, and hopefully we're learning lots from you as well. Paul. Don't know about that. Um, so, <laughs> so and, and, our, and our second guest today, David. Why don't you introduce yourself? Name Richard Campbell. Um, so my name's David Fern. I'm the technical director of our CS UK and Ireland. Um, responsible for our overall technical strategy, vendor onboarding, um, of all 122 of our fine, fine flock of, uh, of current bits and bobs that we, uh, that we take through companies like yourselves to market. So yeah, good fun. Yeah, so um, actually, before we delve into this, and maybe just a, a, a quick intro for for the guests. Like I said, uh, and Richard touched on this, Arrow ECS are probably a little known company, although a massive company. So, um, but just a little bit about what you do and where you, where you kind of sit in the technology industry. So we're an interesting organisation because we sit across quite a lot of the a lot of the world um, of IT. Um, so to give you the thousand foot view, Arrow ECS is part of a larger organisation called Arrow Electronics. Um, Arrow Electronics is the 119th biggest company in the world. Uh, we have the world's largest um, IT electronics component distributor. We have a manufacturing organization. We have our enterprise computing solutions division, which is what ECS stands for. We have Arrow SI, which is our systems integration business around supporting um, internet things in the field. Then we also happen to own the world's largest IT recycling organization. Uh, once again, spread completely globally across the world, like all of our other businesses. So, <clears throat> um, very big organization. And, uh, yeah, the ECS, specifically the ECS bit is, um, we're split into three very distinct, um, business units. We have our data center business unit. We have our network and security business unit and our solutions business unit. And the idea being that they will collaborate to create the most innovative and most sort of Industry leading outcomes that we can possibly find for our retailers to then take to go and be innovative, forward thinking, and you know, generally sort of win the mind share and obviously win the opportunities inside of their end customers. So, yeah, so, so thanks for that. Because I think, it, you know, it's, it's worthwhile to understand where you guys sit and, and where you sit in the industry and, and why of a company of such a size that people perhaps haven't heard of you. Um, 
So what I wanted to delve into today and, uh, and the, the topic for, for this week's show uh, is something that David does, um, has done for, I think, the last three years. Yeah, three or four years, yeah. So David, at the, the start of the year, uh, does what many people who do blogs or podcasts do, um, and I, I've already done one this year, um, is kind of a bit of a look ahead uh, to you know the, the way the technology industry is going, the kind of bets maybe that we should be making. Um, and as I say, David's done this for kind of the last three, four years, um, and he's got his uh, 2018 post ready to go. But we're not actually going to look at that. So, so David did um, his 2017 predictions last year, and there was there was a few areas in there that I thought were really interesting. I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of delve into a little bit more, um, and just to kind of get a feel for how you think. Not how you thought those predictions are going. You know, you've, you've got your own, uh, we'll, we'll kind of come to this later. You've got your own show where, where people can go and, and listen to how those predictions did. Um, but more about the kind of the general direction that, um, that, that some of the, that drove some of those predictions. So a lot of the work that you talked about was around data. Um, and, and we've already spoke today a couple of times around, um, kind of how, uh, how pe- companies and organizations are using data and technology differently. Um, but maybe let's just start there. So, you know, you, we, how are you seeing the way that organizations are using data? How are you seeing that changing from this kind of, you know, high level view that you get across quite a wide industry? Do you want to go there? Or? I'll, I'll, I'll happily start there. You start. Well, so, we are. It is like doing a tech interview podcast with Morecambe and Wise at the moment. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So whoever wants to take that question on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think organisations, I've been a bit more over thinking for blog. Um, but yeah, yeah, plenty of organisations have started leveraging data more now. Um, why? Well, I think they're starting to really genuinely see the value in leveraging the data. And I think they're starting to see um, the opportunity and the, um, what's the right way to put this? The sort potential? Of, the potential, yeah, the potential advantages that having a more data-driven strategy a fundamental data-driven strategy you can give them. Um, you know, we've done a lot of research into this. We work with Gartner and IDC as, as you know, the size and scale of the organization. We don't just make decisions. We nearly, we, we consult with, with external consultants and, and ask them for their opinions and sort of what they're seeing on, on the world and how things are changing. And, and in 2017, you know, the reason that we came up with those predictions was because everyone was saying this is going to be the year we're going to start to see data become a differentiating factor. And actually, organizations will, will start to look at data, not just as this is something that's in a spreadsheet, but this is something that we can start to bring together through multiple different methodologies to combine and create really valuable um, sort of outcome-driven statistics, outcome-driven decision-making um, by using what we already got plus some other sources and, that, and that's essentially the, the sort of trend that we started to to try and take on and, and take. But one of the things I will say is, is our definition of, and I will use the buzzword immediately, big data, very different to a lot of others. Um, you know, to us, this whole thing was never driven by vast quantities of data. It wasn't driven by organizations having billions of rows of one, what we call dimension of data. Um, a dimension of data being, you know, sales figures. Another dimension might be, um, you know, the net profit from those sales. Another dimension might be you know, the customer satisfaction statistic from that sale. There's three dimensions of data. Every single one of them has a completely different way of measuring it, a completely different, all the, you know, a completely different characteristic. So 
sort of big data for us is not about having a billion of one of those dimensions. It's about combining those three dimensions to really understand how that cell went. Could you have sold them more? When do you need to re-interact with them? That's difficult. But that was our definition of big data, and that's what we tried to go and help customers achieve, um, and, and quite successfully. And we've done that in a few different ways, which can come on for a minute, with our Howard London project. Um, just some, some really interesting examples of how we've taken big data and shown people how they can utilize it to get interesting answers, and then how they can pivot from that onto other things. I think one of the um, one of the really interesting topics that you mentioned when we were talking about this and kind of this idea of data management, and you're right, and we'll, we'll come on to some of these things about how you start to utilize this data, but you kind of coined this phrase, and I found it quite an interesting phrase, is this idea of data divorce. So, you know, so what, what do you mean by that? What, you know, explain a data divorce. The data divorce was really in the, it was using analytics to underpin your GDPR strategy. So there's two ways to do GDPR. You can go and GDPR or GDPIs, hey, another new one. Um, you can you can go and GDPR the data, right? So you can go and and secure it and encrypt it and all the things that technology can do, and then you can provide all of the various mechanisms, both operationally and legally, to make sure the data you collect is you know, appropriate in scope and all the other things that the GDPR thing, the GDPR regulations need. Or you can turn and say. Okay, there's some data that we absolutely have to have personally identifiable. There's other data that we don't need to collect the personally identifiable data of. We can actually create um, anonymized data that actually allows us to not have to GDPR it, but still get a huge amount of analytical insight. So, for example, um, in our London office in, in London, um, ironically, we collect the data of who comes in and out in a day. Now that data is, needs to be dealt with in a GDPR fashion. Unless, you see, we only store that data for one day and then we get rid of it. Because for that one day, for a health and safety perspective, we need to know who's been in, who's been out, when they're in, when they're out. We need to be able to contact them so if there's a fire. It's health and safety regulations. We have to have it. Longer term, though, it's great to know who's been utilizing your, your establishment. But I don't necessarily care what individuals from organizations have been leveraging our London office as a base. What I care about is, you know, how many of our resellers, which of our resellers are utilizing it the most, which are getting value, what vendors are getting value from, from our London facility. And to that end, I don't care about the person from the vendor or the person from the partner. I care about the number of trips a particular partner has put in. So when I go and have sit down meetings, I can say, you know, we're fighting over two, three points of margin. Well, you know that you visited our um, facilities and, and rented 70 hours worth of rooms last quarter. So should I start charging you for those or do you want to still leverage this facility for free and we'll stop talking about, you know, insignificant points of margin? Um, you know, but it's about changing the way that you store data and divorcing yourself from this need to think that you have to store everything in case you miss something and this need to think, God, if I don't literally store every little bit of data that comes into my data warehouse in its original format, I might miss something. It's about just being a bit more bullish and thinking about how you're going to utilize that data in a more, just a simpler way, basically. So I think we've, what we've seen over the last 12 months, and, and certainly my, in my roles here at, at, at Arrow, I've been lucky enough to work with quite a wide, wide number of, of organizations. Um, 
with with different views of data and different roles within that whole data journey, data strategy, the whole management of data within an organisation. And I think GDPR is a great example because what it's highlighting to organisations is we've a stra- we, we, we've a strategy or, or actually we don't have a strategy around data, which is we'll collect and keep everything just in case. So GDPR is forcing organisations to really have a look at that lack of a strategy around it. I think yeah, with, with my role this year, you look at other trends and areas where organisations are looking to leverage technology to achieve a business outcome. So areas like IoT. You're seeing organisations take the view of, oh, hang on a minute, the, the sheer volume of data that we are now faced with a removal of any sort of barrier to collect information, whether it be about you, whether it be about David, myself, whether it be about this chair, a window, a light, uh, an oil rig, a delivery truck, a superstore, yet those barriers are, are being removed. And a good number of organisations are now starting to look at things, uh, look at this data problem, we'll call it, and say, yeah, well, I can't control what data I've got at the minute. I don't know what data I've got at the minute, let alone what information I can extract from it and what potential value it could, could be worth to me. And that's where I'm starting from. Looking forward, I'm, I have now the ability to ingest data into my organisation from an umpteen number of other different sources to help augment and drive further value from the data that we've already got. But if you can't get your house in order to begin with, how the heck are you going to put yourself in a position as a business to be able to bring in additional valuable information, whether it be personalised, anonymised, whether it be around about a, a physical device or, or a locale or, or the weather, to drive further cost reductions, further optimizations, further new services. How can you do that if you don't have an effective data strategy today? One of the other things that was was mentioned in the post you did last year that, that caught my attention was this idea around data-driven decision-making. So the idea that actually as a company, as an organization, the way that we are going to make our decisions in the future will be driven by data. However, we can't do that if the data sets that we're using to make those decisions are flawed to begin with. So um, let's explore that a little bit. So this idea of data-driven decision-making. So again, interesting concepts. I thought something that caught my attention. So again, what do we, what do we mean? What, what do we mean when we do that? This one, this one has a multi-factor to it. So the first one is that I think all organizations can say that they are making data-driven decisions at the moment. The problem is those data-driven decisions are made by individuals and their own version of the truth Excel spreadsheet, um, you know, a, something, a piece of um, literature I read uh, started last year that was really interesting that basically said, how can you convince anyone to take up a big data strategy? And it basically went along the lines of, imagine you're a company of 100 individuals, right? Each of you makes decisions on data every single day using Excel. You look at a series of 10 numbers you have to basically rank them in order and then make a decision on you know what you do. The amount of time it takes 
for that individual to look at that data, right or wrong, right or wrong, um, make a decision, and then essentially go and act on that decision is maybe three or four minutes because you've got to look, you've got to figure out, you know, a series of 10 numbers, which one's the most. If you were to turn and put a, so first and foremost, you are in that situation, you're in your, the, the, the information you're looking at, you are, you're looking at the information subjectively. That's the first thing, right? Because you've got your own subjective view inside of your database or your Excel spreadsheet. It's basically biased by your version of where you think things should be weighted, the importance of certain factors. Um, and fundamentally, you are, you're going to make a different decision to the person sitting next to you, which drives huge inconsistency in the business. The cost of the inconsistency, the cost of the errors, and the fundamental cost of having lots of people maintaining their own you know, data warehouse on their laptop, if you were to actually put that and quantify that into a monetary value, the, the cost of then implementing a centralized, dashboard-based, graphical analytics product or platform or solution into your organization is not just exponentially cheaper, it's going to desperately increase your um, productivity and also your competitive, your ability to have a competitive advantage in what will be an inevitably very um, competitive industry that you're probably working in. So, you know, we went on this this basis of if you just did this really, really simple thing, you could completely change the way that your organization sits. And you know, if it's literally just a financial decision that you need to get the project off the ground, I think everyone would love to implement the tableaus and the clicks and the splunks of this world that's cost and complexity prohibitive. We always say, you know, some of the biggest factors to a, a, an analytics implementation is not necessarily that you don't have the data because most people have the data. It's not necessarily that you couldn't afford the tooling because most, most of the time you can make these business cases to, to use them. It's that actually if you look at the, you know, the end user, they're the ones that actually have to become like data scientists to be able to leverage the tools. And they're used to Excel. They've become a data scientist in doing Excel. And this is something that a lot of organizations don't necessarily take a huge amount of thought into. So it's a, it's a huge task for an organization to undertake. But if you can convince them that they can become more accurate, but make better decisions quicker and do it in a way that means that at no point are they exposing themselves to this biased, um, subjective view of their business or their customers or, you know, that, that could have massive and really do have massive repercussions. You know, you can immediately start to talk about how data-driven decision-making will be something that becomes massive. And, and I think the tooling has come down in cost, the skill sets that are out there to train and to implement. And I think actually, if you don't do it or at least start to take it very seriously, you are going to be in a position where you're going to be behind your competition as far as being able to compete on that, you know, on a like-for-like basis. One thing that David mentioned there, which I thought was quite interesting, was the idea of people's own version of the truth. And I think if you're trying to make business decisions and become this much more data-focused organization, you can't run that on being having individuals deciding, you know, depending on what day of the week is and who you speak to is is the, is the di- direction that your business is going to take. Just going back to some of the things that you might have seen. So, you know, where, where have you seen some real value delivered by, and things like actually IBM Watson making these services far more, uh, uh, you know, something that far more, uh, easy for for an organisation to access. You know, wh- wh- how are you seeing that develop? That's a really good question. Um, 
I think first and foremost, um, as as David's just been saying, yeah, I, I, I'm going to give I'm going to give an industry in in the UK yeah, a, a lot of credit. I think a lot of businesses are now starting to look at yeah how how do we give the right people in the right line of business teams the best chance of making the right decisions, but the best decisions for that moment in time. Um, the cost of entry of products to help support that is coming down. Skills are more readily available or accessible uh, through through some of our partners uh, and some of, certainly some of the vendors. Um, and, and and ultimately, I think people are now starting to think about you know the next step on from that. Um, I think over the last year, year and a half, arguably two years plus, the premise of modelling and trying to predict, predictive analytics has become certainly more accessible. I I see it stepping out of that financial office from a budgetary setting point of view. I think accountants are very, and and the financial office is, is very well adept at taking those what if scenarios and saying, well, what would happen if? What would happen yeah. if? Now, we live in very uncertain times. And yeah, I, I think other areas of the business are now starting, you know, other lines of business within organizations are starting to think there is value to be gained from that. However, back to what I was saying earlier about the vast volumes of data that yeah, even relatively small businesses have now, the potential access to um, yeah, huge data sets that you know, they can tap into leads us to a scenario where current technology from an analytics perspective and the current corpus of skills and experience within an organization, there's a bottleneck. And that's the human in the process, ultimately. Um, IBM and, and Watson, yeah, IBM have been really good at you know, using the Watson brand and getting it out there and getting people to think about cognitive, whether that be cognitive technology from a perspective of artificial intelligence or realistically where we're at today, elements of machine learning and elements of, I wouldn't call AI artificial intelligence, I would call it augmented intelligence. Yeah. The vast volumes of data we have access to really lend themselves to the to deployment of yeah relatively simple machine learning and artificial intelligence based solutions to help with modeling and predictivity around analytics to help take some of the workloads out. And what we've really seen over the last certainly the last six months, where we sat here in January twenty eighteen, is that that move from businesses that I work with, yeah, looking at Watson, going, oh, sounds good, it's interesting, we'll come back to that. Actually, now we're at a stage where yeah, there's starting to lose track of the number of organizations that are going, all right, we're going to start taking access to maybe some of the, uh, the Watson APIs. So simple text-to-speech, elements of the conversation, elements of machine learning, um, and, and really bring them into the services and solutions to start to 
augment and, mm. and offer new feature functions to to where they're at today. And and it's interesting. This David, you mentioned data scientists. Well, that, yeah. I think one of the things that I think I draw <laughs> draw clip I draw a distinction on today is that yeah, the types of organisations that have kind of held the high ground from the point of view of business information and data analytics. Their strength is there. Their strength is in having data analysts. There is a distinction between experts in that field and experts in machine learning and AI. Data scientists almost lack that analytical edge that yeah, our well-established analytics partners do because they focus on the maths. Exactly, yeah. the maths. And this is where we're starting to see a convergence of the two. AI and machine learning is, is stepping out of academia, it's stepping out of government-funded research, and it's actually stepping out of the large-scale enterprise. Well, I think it's, it's, it's also becoming more accessible. This is exactly what I'm about to say. It's becoming a lot more intuitive, and I think actually you don't need to be a data scientist to take advantage of yeah. AI and machine learning. I think anyone with a modicum of programming capability could leverage the APIs that AWS and Azure and Bluemix all spin up into existence and then just start to pass data to these mm. services and get predicted answers back. Um, you know, so I'm no, no genius around this sort of stuff, but I've been able to program multiple very complex neural networks by literally just passing up sets of tagged data to these services and coming back and saying, yep, trained, ready to go, and then you can start to build Twitter spam classifiers and Twitter sentiment classifiers. And, you know, one of the one of the best projects that we ran recently was, um, was well, there's, a, there's been a few. So there's How Up Is London, where we were using it to do prediction for crime statistics based on days and weather. We were doing it for Twitter sentiment analysis. That, you know, and, and that with 2.4, 2.4, 2 2.6 billion other data points, every day we were able to predict the happiness of London with a minute frequency. Um, we've been able to build the election prediction system. So we essentially basically used Twitter to, we pulled in all of Twitter that was relevant to political sentiment and basically we used it to first and foremost determine political affiliation. We then, of that particular tweet, we then determined whether or not that political affiliation was positive, negative or neutral. So obviously it could have been the BBC talking about the Conservatives or it could have been someone talking about the Conservatives very negatively. We were then able to, from that, determine you know, the period of time that so the people could have been flipping. So it could have been someone who was very strongly Labour talking negatively about the Conservatives. So you had to detect the Conservative piece and then detect, detect sentiment. Only way we were able to do that, the scale we need to do it, I think we processed in, in excess of 10 million tweets over three weeks. Um, and the only way we were able to do that was using large-scale machine learning networks that we were able to, instead of worrying about spinning up gigantic infrastructure, we were able to just say, right, here's what I want to be able to detect. Here's some examples. Maybe 10,000 examples. So it's not a small number of examples. The more examples you give it, the more accurate the trained model. But fundamentally, I could then just say, okay, here's a REST API, pass data, and give me answers. You know, it's literally going labor, 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 neutral, negative, negative, neutral, positive, positive, positive. And interestingly, the net, net, net of that, and once again, this is online as, as one of our blogs, um, when we switched the system on, we let it like learn, we let it bed in. A day later, 
it came back and said that the general election, the snap general election, this was um, in 2015 now, was it or 2016? 2016. 2016. Um, the the outcome of that was going to be 60% Labour, 30% Conservatives, and the rest was the rest. I mean, Lib Dem spiked at, I think, 4% once. So Lib Dems were quite clearly out, but it was saying that Labour were going to win by a landslide majority. Now, interestingly, Labour didn't win by a landslide majority, but they did push it to a un- very unpredicted hung parliament. Now, we then, a couple of days later, we got the YouGov data, and we actually correlated that if you look at the demographic that uses Twitter, which is 19 or 18 to 36, and you look at the YouGov data that says that the 18 to 36-year-old age range pretty much solely voted for Labour, but then in the next chart, the most underrepresented demographic at the polls, so the people who didn't actually go and vote, were the 18 to 36-year-olds. So fundamentally, we were able to prove that if more people had gone and voted, we would have a different government in power today. And that was literally just leveraging, making real-time data-driven decisions with something that I built in the week, in a weekend. And, and it was kind of easy, I wanted to have a chat with you guys, because I thought that some of the things that were put in this prediction, I'll put in the show notes links to kind of the blogs that you did last year and, and the stuff that you're doing for this year. And it wasn't to do a piece where, let's see how right or wrong Richard and David were in their predictions. But it, yeah. So, but which was actually much more about, you know, for, in my mind, this kind of, um, you, you know, you can see the flow of the way that organizations, I think in my opinion, at least the way organizations need to be thinking about this. So we've done, we talked about how data management plays a part in this, this idea of divorcing out of your organization data that either shouldn't be there or has no place in your decision making. Yeah. We've looked at how analytics now is becoming an increasingly important cog in our decision making and actually how, if we get the data management right, that the technology to allow us to do the analytics is much more available off the shelf. You know, plugins to Azure Analytics, the Cortana Analytics services via Excel, for example. You know, because people, as you touched on a couple of times, people are used to using Excel. If what I can do is take that data in Excel and shove it off to some big analytics engine for for it to do something with it and return smarter answers. You know, so all those things are, are interesting. And, and so the third part I just wanted to touch on, just maybe to kind of wrap up, was something else that you, you talked about in that, was this idea of a change in security posture. Again, without retrospectively looking at how, how good or bad a prediction that was, I think we're absolutely right. And we, we have seen certainly that lots of businesses that we talk to has have shifted the way they view their security. And actually increasingly lots less, lots more, so not looking quite so much now at have I got a firewall and some antivirus tools, but actually assuming that that is a breach, you know, that those, those edge security tools are going to have been breached and looking after the, somebody's got access to my data. How do I control it? We were all, all three of us were at InfoSec hmm. last year and it was, it was mind boggling really because it's gone from being, I think, a, a comment and a concept about they're already in that no disrespect to anybody you know was, was very prevalent in the paranoid to be it's kind of the industry standard mm-hmm. setting now yeah. you've got to assume that somebody's in so how do you start I suppose going on the offensive how do you start going threatening well and that's kind of what I want to touch on so this idea of security posture and, and let's park 
data privacy for a moment. Now, there's lots, lots, yeah. of, lots of content out there that talks about data privacy and GDPR. But what are some of the other things that you're seeing in terms of this kind of switch in security posture? You know, what, what if, if people are listening to this as a somebody maybe as a CISO or as a CTO or CIO listening to this show, thinking, what are the kind of security focus areas I should have going yeah, forward? It's really interesting because what we've seen accelerate dramatically over the last maybe five years has been um, a very, very, very diverse um, security landscape and what we call a tax service. By the tax service, essentially the number of routes into an organization's core data to be able to attack them and, and sort of cause havoc. Now, obviously, we'll, for now, we'll disregard social engineering, we'll, we'll disregard sort of phishing and all those sorts of things, things that attack what we call layer eight. The, uh, the soft squishy thing at the top of the TCP IP or the top of the OSI model. Um, the end user, for those who aren't as, as technical as, and sad as we are. Um, but, you know, yeah, let's be honest, five years ago, you could turn around and say, we have a firewall, everything is behind that firewall, and everything's really good. And do you know what? We limit the amount of things that we do on mobile devices and we because actually our users aren't demanding it or if they are they're one or two users that are demanding it so we can spin up a really closely guarded vpn or something to to guide them in really neatly and tightly but what we have to understand now is it's not even about exposing sort of your on-prem mobile uh, on-prem assets to mobile like data or applications it's about the fact that what is your data center anymore? What is a data center? What is the definition of a data center? Because a data center to me is no longer what sits inside of a rack in either your basement or, or a colo. Your data center is some, some public cloud, some private cloud, some, some SaaS solutions, you know, Office 365, Salesforce, AWS, Azure, infrastructure, storage, networking, mobility, uh, you know, I'll keep going, but it's just insane. And that is your data center now. And actually cobbling all of this together in a secure way is something that I don't actually think anyone really genuinely knows how to do, which brings you right back to that whole put put Chinese walls around what's really important. But then you need to you need to rely upon things like AI, you need to rely upon things like micro-segmentation, you need to rely upon automation to be able to start to actually protect against um, these new threats. And then there's some new technologies that are coming in around um, when we look at software-defined technologies and we talk about um, security chaining and uh, network function virtualization, we can start to wrap these groups of bits to be they on-prem, off-prem, SaaS, PaaS, IaaS, whatever they might be. Um, we can start to wrap them as services and provide them with their own security chain. So no longer do I have one firewall. Every single application has its own firewall. No longer do I have one IPS or IDS. I have one for every single service that's delivered, and it's specifically tuned to the needs of that service to give the best possible protection. So, and then obviously we monitor and we understand and we use AI to baseline networks. Um, I listen to a really good podcast, Security Now. For, for anyone watching, anyone on security, Security Now, it's one of the most popular security podcasts out there. And I remember I started listening to it back in 2014, and um, they were doing a review of the Sony hack. And they literally said the only way that, that Sony could have prevented that hack from occurring is if they'd have had a security advisor looking over the shoulder of every single employee saying, no, don't, don't click on that. No, don't do that. No, don't do this. 
or if they'd have had security advisors sl- literally staring at the network statistics. So this is and the crux of it, isn't it? I, yeah, well, there is... Our, our infrastructure, our, uh, our enterprise, our technology enterprise, you know, in our business and the businesses that we're connected to, in our physical locations, um, in, in our cloud locations, yeah, at home, wherever, yeah, they're so complex and they're so mm. interconnected now <coughs> that kind of gets back to a common theme for what we've been talking about the last half hour, which is, you know what, the, the volumes of data, the volumes of, um, of, of ways and routes in the size of that threat vector. You know what? Gone are the days where yeah, security administrators uh, and anybody involved in cybersecurity is no longer an asset that is a commodity. We cannot, as an industry, train enough people quick enough to deal with the threats. But this, the is, but this is the thing. And um, um, where I was going to with the with the story sorry, about that, sorry, stress. Come on, we do this all the time. Yeah. Um, I, what I'm trying to get to with the Sony hack was that there is no, there is two ways of dealing with these mm. problems. You train yeah. thousands of security staff, but that's just crackers. Yeah. Or you start to apply, employ new and innovative technologies to fix these problems. And AI has actually come to the rescue Absolutely. of all security because now you've got. So we've we've just onboarded uh, a new vendor, sort of middle of last year, called Carbon Black, and they have their endpoint security product, which seems like a rather, you know, busy market. Got but these, but these yeah. guys, yeah, a Me Too vendor, but actually they've gone and said, how can we employ things like, um, you know, AI to understand how you type on a keyboard? So if you're typing on a keyboard and you're typing your password in, I can tell whether or not it's you typing that password or me typing that password, even if you've got the same password. Because I've learned, I've used AI to learn how you type and, and the, the speed at which you go from key to key. And from that, I can understand your own typing fingerprint. So I've got the endpoint covered. And by the way, I also know exactly how you use Facebook because organizations are letting you use Facebook nowadays, right? But so, but then the Russian hackers know you use Facebook. So they build all of their command and control center proxies in Facebook, in Facebook applications. So literally they'll be sending, ex- you know, exfiltrating the information off your laptop through Facebook out to their Chinese or Russian or wherever. Obviously other hackers do exist. I think I'm going to be exfiltrating information through Facebook. So as far as the firewall is concerned, it's like Facebook.com, that's absolutely fine. That's not, you know, something really, really dodgy. But actually... These systems learn how you use Facebook, how you use Twitter, how you use LinkedIn, how you use Google, and can tell whether or not it's you surfing and clicking and looking at pictures of cats in hats, or whether it's a piece of automated software that is starting to, that is basically sending information or exfiltrating data from your laptop up to up to Facebook and then on to wherever it's going to command and control and, and sort of further penetrate organizations. So you've got that, and then you've also got the same technology in the core infrastructure of, of organizations baseline the entire organization's network traffic. So immediately they can start to understand if there's anything out of the ordinary. So it's almost like online fraud detection, but for end users, for mobile devices, and for um, for big corporate assets. And that's sort of the way that we're starting to deal with some of these massive issues now. Um, because the reality is... It's just become way too complex for any of us to try and 
do in any other way other than just to employ huge levels of automation, huge levels of... Well, that sounds like, I'd probably to sum up, I suppose, if, you know, if we were to look at just, just those three areas of the things that you, you, you've covered over the, you know, you covered last year, just in those three areas there, you know, it strikes me that the thing that we're looking at and the thing that we're perhaps imploring businesses to do and organizations that we talk to to do is just to start thinking differently about some of these problems. You know, look at the way you manage your data, think differently, you know, don't just think about have I got it all secured and backed up as important as that is, but should I have it at all? And if I've got it, what am I using it for? You know, get rid of stuff that you don't want from an analytics point of view. Don't be afraid of analytics. Now those services are available. Look at, how I can give those tools to the people who can make, take, they're not an IT tool, they're for tools for people making business decisions. How do I get them into their hands? And in terms of security, let's look at how that, the security challenge is shifting and changing so much. Now, don't worry about, can I train everybody and can I train everybody to be a security expert? Of course you can't. Can I put things in place that assume I'm going to have a security problem and let me put some things in place that will re- reduce that, you know? And, and I mean, does that, that kind of sum it up? I think, you know, there's a lot of really yeah, innovative and neat and cool tech out there. Um, I think in, in the areas that, that we've talked about, yeah, it's no business just decides to go and invest in those areas just for the sake of it. Yeah. Look at the outcome that you want it to achieve. Look at the business problems that you faced with today and let those drive your decision making processes. Not, yeah, as, as to which is the right technology, which is the right that area to address first and build a robust strategy on that. Because actually, the point of entry to a lot of what we've talked about, it's, 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 if it's not within the reach of most companies, it's rapidly coming down and, and it puts you more on a, on a proactive and a, an offensive posture rather than thinking about right I've got these problems and I'm in a cycle that just means I've got to throw more more yeah. just to keep on it doesn't have to be that way right well James look that's been fascinating stuff I think we literally could talk for hours about this um, and but thankfully for the listener uh, we're not going to um so, but look, guys, um, if people want to find out more about the kind of work you do and the kind of topics that you're involved in, uh, how, how do they find you? How do they find you on the on the social medias? We have our own podcast called uh, Arrow Bandwidth. So, um, yeah, we're in 60, 66 episodes into our fourth season of that. Yeah, yeah, we, we, keep, we that, keep ignoring the police stops. Yeah, we'll take that all over <laughs> the world, um, cover as many of the big events as we can get to, but we're also both active on Twitter. Yep. You more than me, but... A little bit more. Uh, how are we, how we going to hunt you down? How are we, we going to start you on the Twitters then, Richard? So, I am underscore Rich underscore Holmes. And uh, at David yeah, and and the the, the Arrow Bandwidth podcast that you guys were on, I think so, is uh, it, it was kind of part of the, partly what inspired me wanting to to have this chat with you. Uh, it was a really great resource for looking at not just the kind of things that Arrow do, but a really good resource yeah. for looking across across technology space. So I'll make sure that's uh, in the show notes. Very vendor neutral and sort of. Lights. Outcome centric. <laughs> yeah. I was saying light, yeah. yeah. Uh, the occasional laugh along. Uh, and it's certainly a fine home for technology bickering um, uh, yeah. along lines as this. So, yeah. gents, look, that, that, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. And look forward to having you on again. I hope you enjoyed that. For show notes, pop over to techstringy.com. We'll also find all of our previous Tech Interviews episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, why not leave us a review? And you can also subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, as well as all other good homes of podcasts. So, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>